What does it mean to be missional? Alan Hirsch is our guest this week discussing how the church should organize itself around the mission of God. It's all in episode 59 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 59 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week, our guest is Alan Hirsch. Alan is an Australian missiologist, author, and thought leader, and is the founder of several organizations, including 100 Movements, Forge Mission Training Network, and the Future Travelers. He's known for his innovative approach to mission, and he's widely considered to be one of the key mission strategists for the church in the Western world. And now, here's our conversation with Alan Hirsch. Alan, it is so great to have you on the Church Leaders Podcast. Let me welcome you to the show. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. So it's been good to be invited to be a part of it. Fantastic. Now, are you podcasting from California right now? Is that where you're at? Yeah, I'm, uh, I live in Los Angeles, uh, and I have been here for, what is it now, eight years. We came here thinking it would be about five, and we've ended up being like, you know, eight years stuck in LA. It's not too terrible, but <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, the weather's good today. Anyway. And you're originally from Australia, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, originally from South Africa. I was born and raised in South Africa uh, and left when I was a but a 22-year-old, a young adult, uh, and I've been an Australian, you know, for the vast majority of my life and see myself as an Aussie. Now, that's awesome. Hey, let me set the course for our conversation a little bit, Alan. What I'd love to do is to really talk about what it looks like to be a missional leader and to lead a missional church. And many of our listeners are probably coming from a traditional background. And so I'd like to kind of um, make this a workshop on what it looks like to transition into something that's a little bit more missional. And so we're going to discuss the ins and outs of that, the philosophy and kind of culture behind that as well, too. But just want to really dig deep into that together as we uh, take time to uh, share this with our leaders. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's, let's say it's a kind of a very complex process, but I'll try and break it down a little bit. It has been, uh, it's predominated my own work for the last, um, yeah, at least five years where I've been working with uh, existing systems, um, and I put that as part denominational, but also with some larger churches as well as other churches, in helping them shift. So it's been a big part of my journey in the last, you know, five years or so. Gotcha. So yeah, we might just scratch the surface in this discussion, but I'd love to get started and just ask you to describe, kind of in a nutshell, what a missional church or a missional movement looks like, and even within that, maybe some of the things that we often mistake for missional that are not. So if you could start there, that would be excellent. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so, you know, this is, I mean, the $100 million question. So what, what does it mean to be missional? Uh, for me, quite simply, it's allowing uh, the our participation in the mission of God in the world. That is, God's mission is prior to the church. That is, it exists in God himself. He sends the Son, and the Son and the Father send the Spirit, and that sentness belongs to the doctrine of God. And the missional church is a church that focuses primarily or allows the organization to be organized around the, the sentence of, uh, that, you know, that it experiences uh, from God. So that very practically it's just uh, our obligation to those outside of the church becomes a priority in terms of how we, we organize our functions of church. It doesn't dismiss the other functions that are legitimate like worship and community and discipleship, but it allows mission to inform all those things, so that they're actually geared towards uh, participating in God's uh, mission in the world. Uh, one, I just think like, so a lot of people say to me, oh, we're a missional church, and I say, why do you think that's the case? And I say, well, we, we do mission. So 
Uh, I say, okay, explain that a little bit to me. And you know, so what we do, uh, we feed the poor uh, on occasion. Uh, we've done the church plants, or we, we do evangelism. I said, all those things are great, but that doesn't make you missional. A missional church is one that allows the mission to determine everything. Uh, it's not just a department or a function of the church. It actually determines everything about the church, that is, its cultural expression. So if I could get geeky about it, I simply say this, is that Christology determines missiology, determines ecclesiology. And what I mean by that is that the person and work of Jesus, that he sets the tone and the, the definitions of what Christianity is on about, and it's very much defined on Jesus, determines our mythology, our function and our purpose in the world. And in turn, that shapes how we express our ecclesiology, that is our church, so that the church derives its kind of agenda or its cultural expression from its missionary obligations. Now, let me say it another way. Someone said it that, that it's not so much that the church has a mission. That's what we normally say, that the church has a mission. Missional thinking says rather that the mission has a church. And mission produces the church in a sense. It's God's mission that produces the church. And we participate in it. We don't invent it. Actually, it's very liberating, Brian, because most people think our oh, mission is an obligation that we have to do. But actually, God is already involved in the world. He's, he is the missionary and he's involved already and we just have to join him. It's, it's actually quite liberating, to be honest. It's an excellent perspective, very unique for sure. But I think it's totally true that sometimes the church can take preeminence and we kind of forget that we're joining God on a mission and it's not all about our specific church's mission. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to think about and I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. Absolutely. I, I would argue, Brian, in fact, this is one of the big criticisms that the missional movement has on the, 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 the existing, well, the inherited forms which come out of the Christendom European expression is that largely we took mission out of the equation very early. So, I mean, I've read Calvin from cover to cover and all that stuff, you know, and his institutes. He mentions mission mainly as something you do among the Muslims, but he doesn't mention it anywhere else. In other words, most of his ecclesiology, most of his theology uh, is, is actually articulated, and I'm using just an example, by the way, uh, is articulated, uh, divorced of any real substantial commitment to the Missio Dei, that God is a missionary. And so it pretty much is bleached out uh, of our codes and our understanding of ourselves. And this is, the, I think, to become a missional church, I know you're going to ask this somewhere along the line because I, I suspect that's a good question. How does it happen? I would argue that the, the, until we actually grapple with the fact that mission is deeply embedded in the very fundamental purposes of the church, that is the purposes of God expressing itself through the local community, and that is our duty and our joy and our obligation to allow that to form us in a significant manner, to change the way we behave. I would argue it's fundamentally a paradigm shift that needs to take place. And I think until one has that paradigm shift, we're never going to be able to become a missional church because most of the ways we think about church are non-missional and very deliberately so. It was scripted right out of the equation. That's fascinating. I'd love to know, like, from the churches that are working with you and your different networks, like, what are some of the things that kind of help them click in their thinking? Maybe a Damascus Road type experience that kind of changed their thinking from an attractional philosophy to a very missional philosophy in church. Okay, so again, it's it's this is it, it, paradigms are irritating things. I mean, because they they're irritatingly conceptual, right? It's like you can't. No one's ever photographed one. 
<laughs> you know, they, they are, I mean, the world is, in, I mean, the paradigm works like this is that the world is an incredibly complicated place. I mean, it's complex, right? And in order to negotiate our way through the world, we have to have a mental map of what is real. And this is done in groups, uh, usually in societies, churches. Mostly it's done where people agree to say this is reality. And it's just the way things are. So the problem is with, with paradigms is because they're so intangible and so um, they assumed, um, we assume that our paradigm is correct because we never really get to look at one or we don't know who discovered water, but we know it wasn't the fish, right? So the paradigms are actually like culture. They, they, they're invisible and they're influencing us all the time. So the problem is with, by selecting a singular paradigm, you deselect other paradigms. Now, now think of me and, and the audience can think of this. You've all, we've all seen that picture of the old woman, young woman thing, that paradigm thing. So when you look at it, and you might see at first an older woman looking at you. And then you blink, look hard and squint a bit, and then ooh, all of a sudden it's a younger woman in profile with a feather in a cap. And then you blink again, you see the old woman, blink again the young woman. And here's the thing is that by selecting one, you can't see the others. And, uh, and that's the problem. That's why I say like a paradigm, uh, you just have to be able to kind of articulate in a way that people get an aha experience. The other thing, bro, uh, is that's what's what I think is happening is that people are. I think the church as a whole is coming to the end of an era. I mean, Christendom as a phenomenon began to dissolve at the time of the French uh, Revolution. That was you know two hundred and whatever years ago, where the secular society or the idea of, of uh, the de-churching or taking the church out of the central uh, as being the central religious institution and then beginning to push it further from the center as just one of the religious options around the place. So it's the secular culture. Europe is the example of this. I mean, like Europe has followed this uh, more, even more consistently than the States. But, but the problem is that most of our thinking, most of our paradigm was set in that Christendom period. So most of our theology, most of our traditional thinking, the rationality, if you will, was developed in a time of profoundly non-missional and and that, of course, is the problem is that, you know, we assume that's correct, but we haven't really stopped to think about it. What we're experiencing in our days is that we feel that now what has got us to this point in history, we're in decline in every Western setting. The church is in systematic trend of decline. Current statistics in England say that uh, on the current rate of, uh, of the closure of, uh, of churches and Christianity in England, that they, I think it's... Uh, 2067 or something like that, say it'll be the effective end of Christianity in Britain. And now, okay, you, people question stats and all that stuff, but there's no denying that there's a significant crisis. Uh, if you look into the future, it's hard to see what we're doing now as viable. And we, and that, that's, you never waste a crisis, bro. So I would say that we need to feel that very deeply and, and feel that the gospel itself is still as valid as it ever has been. But the church as a delivery system for the gospel, as the kind of the primary agency of the kingdom, that's what people have a problem with, and we need to change at that level. The missional ecclesiology, the missional church conversation is one about changing the church to fit the message. Excellent. And that helps us understand it on a really kind of philosophical, historical perspective. Could you also give us a little bit of a, a picture of what the missional church looks like kind of in action today? Uh, maybe even in contrast to some of the traditional churches, what makes it distinct? Okay, well, so the traditional church, again, coming, it is assumed, 
pretty much the, the paradigm is assumed from Christendom. That is, the assumption is that the church exists as part of culture and people, yeah, well, they, you know, they all understand that, that that's the religion of the culture and so everyone streams towards that. If you went to find God in medieval Europe, you would just go to church. I mean, there weren't many other options around. But your assumption would be that the church was where you went to. And the thing is what we call this, uh, Ralph Winter used this kind of this spectrum um, of uh, what he called cultural distance. Uh, and um, he used the word zero to four. And so you've got to think of it like as a continuum, a line. And every integer, every number indicates a significant barrier to the meaningful communication of the gospel line. Now, most of the Christendom churches operated within M0, M1. And when, you, when you're not reaching beyond a cultural barrier, like language, worldview, religion, economics, you know, big categories of culture, when you're not having to cross that, I mean, if I said, like, bro, if we, if we had to learn what it meant to, to learn a new language to communicate meaningfully, well, hey, that's got a lot more complicated already, right? Now, everyone knows that. The problem is that most of our methodologies, most of our thinking is set within M0, M1. That's what I call outreach. I know pun intended. <laughs> That's called outreach, and also you might call it evangelism. That is, you're not crossing a cultural barrier. Uh, it's, it's the low-hanging fruit because you're not having to learn fundamentally different cultural things. You don't have to translate the message. Now, that works. That's fine, but most of our churches are geared that way. So most of us, we reach out and we pull people back in, and that's all right within M01. That's problematic if you start reaching out beyond M1 to M2, M3, M4, because that's a whole lot more complicated. And the problem is that we are very undeveloped in our methodology. Uh, and incarnation is the way we say that uh, we are the sent people of God, that the church, our obligation is to go to them, not to necessarily always expect them to come to us and our services, but actually go there and plant the gospel. And that's a key word we use. Because you don't plant a church, you plant the good news of Jesus. Jesus' story, and, and that the church begins to form itself around Jesus. It, it will look different, hopefully, because of the different cultural context. But we've got to learn how to plant the gospel again. And it's just so strange to us because most of our codes, like I said, most of our theology is fundamentally non-missional. It's never really thought about this. It's just assumed that it's the central religious institution. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that does make sense. And maybe you could also unpack for us uh, kind of – uh, what it looks like for a ministry to reach that M3, M4 level. Uh, maybe give us a couple examples of that. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Like, you know, so uh, in most of my, in a number of my books, there's a free one actually available on my website, uh, alanhirsch.org. It's called Fast Forward to Mission. And to be honest, one of my most accessible briefings for mission in, in the West, right? So it's a, it's a freebie there. And, and, I, and I recommend, you know, if anyone's interested to check it out. They are used this kind of category of M0 to M4. Traditionally, it was always used as cross-cultural mission overseas. And then begin to kind of give you categories of, let's say, in the West, you might find that, say, reaching out to a second-generation Muslim uh, is they are somewhat alienated from the church for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and they might be M2. If they're first-generation and they wear hijab, I suspect they're probably further down the track. But there are people like this in our in our settings, the Jewish people. I'm a Jewish kid, not a kid anymore, but I like to think of myself that way. 
you know, also somewhat alienated. Uh, Christian history has been very unkind to the Jews. And so, yeah, it's very, very hard to communicate the, the message to Jewish people. The homosexual community would be, again, far from us. But also just like it doesn't have to be all complex groups like that. It could just simply be the local pub. And, I mean, we've seen amazing ministries take place in pubs and sports clubs, uh, nightclub. Um, I mean, you name it, uh, acting groups. A worshipping community, a Jesus community, can actually, it doesn't need a building. It doesn't need the things that we think it needs. Uh, It it just needs to have the Jesus story and and, and then to learn how to have community around that. And the Bible gives us enough guidance on how that happens. We can do that in, in wonderful ways, you know. It doesn't have to be always the same whole thing, you know. Incarnational mission is the mother of innovation, in my opinion, because it demands when you're taking the gospel onto brand new ground into a new group of people and you're trying to speak in words in a language that makes sense to them, well, you know, you have to be innovative. You can't assume that what what works here in, in the in the church setting that we used to is going to work over there. You have to be much more playful and innovative and entrepreneurial in, in trying to bring it out. So it's very good for us because it brings up that creativity thing. Yeah, I love that. And in thinking about that, you're working with a lot of megachurch leaders who are transitioning their thinking into more of a missional focus. Love to kind of sh- just ask you to share a little bit about some of those leadership thoughts or, or other thoughts on leadership that are shifting within kind of the missional thinking in some of those larger churches you're working with. Okay, so just uh, just to uh, refer another book, I've, I, I, I coming over to. Uh, I mean, you've, you've mentioned like shaping the things to come. That book, um, we wrote that very much as a sorry. Yes, love that book. I would totally recommend it. Thank you, bro. That's uh, and it was a book that kind of landed at a critical time, and it, it named a conversation. Uh, it was you know whatever God is good, but the, the thing is that when that was written, as you would reckon, you you know you've read it so. You know, it's like it's written in, it's not polemical, but it's kind of a challenge to the existing system. And it's written, I was leading a denomination at the time, as well as a local church. I was a senior pastor in a local church. And the combination of those roles, and I began to realize this is Australia. It's a very, very secular culture, more like Europe uh, for Americans. Uh, Very hard work. Um, And uh, began to see, you know, that that our our fundamental model, our way of being the church that we've just so practiced in just wasn't going to work. And there had to be some sort of way of thinking. So I would say the critical part f- for this was that the leader has to experience that paradigm shift, I think, to be able to see that we actually stand in a completely different time and place and also begin to kind of give permission, I think, to experiment outside of the, the uh, you know, out of the box. But I do think, it, the, the, I often think of leaders as keys, right? Like if you think of a metaphor of a key, a key opens the door, closes the door. And I think leaders are the guardians of the keys or the paradigm of the of the organization or the church. And it's fundamental that the leaders submit themselves to a learning journey. If it doesn't happen in the hearts and minds of leaders, it's hard to imagine how any local church can ever get there. And that's why the leadership conversation is absolutely critical. Uh, and they have to feel the challenge of our times and feel the challenge of, a, of, of, of the decline of the church as a whole, not just theirs. I mean, they could be relatively successful, but in the grand scheme, you know, We've got more megachurches in America now than ever before. We've got less Christians in America than ever before. Just do the math. In other words, more of the same is not going to get different results, not fundamentally. We have to find other ways. 
it's both and, right? And that's one of the big challenges I think that leaders have got to think in terms of both and, not either or. Keep doing what you're doing, but begin to experiment in the various fringes of your culture, you know, or your of the church. There are things that are happening on the edges there that are really wonderful opportunities to be able to learn how to engage in sports teams or, you know, just having a barbecue, you know, and a beer and a Bible and get over it, you know, learn how to engage with non-Christian people on their terms. I think that's critical, learning how to engage non-Christians on their terms instead of inviting them to us. And I think it definitely proves that the the attractional church model has a ceiling. It does. And one, one of the, again, another free book, <laughs> I'm selling books at the moment, Another freebie on the uh, exponential side is a book I wrote called Disciplism. I mean, the fundamental basis behind us that we read the fundament, yeah, that the way we do evangelism is damaging our capacity to make disciples. It's a challenge I put out there. The reason why I say that is because we tend to read the Great Commission uh, as an evangelism. So if someone says, well, we're a Great Commission church, and we say, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, we... Uh, we do evangelism. I say, okay, let's read the Great Commission together. And, um, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead. They're worshiping him there. It's a pretty awesome kind of experience. He's just about to ascend to heaven. And he commissions them. He says, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to what? Obey all that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've, I've got your backs. I'm with you. Sign the check. I sign it with you. So go, you know, off you go. Now, I say, where do you see evangelism there <laughs> exactly? <laughs> so it's a bit of a shock because, I mean, most people never stop to think about that. But I think if we just did, if we started by actually discipling non-Christian people, and if that sounds such a shock to most listeners, I say, look at Jesus. When exactly do we think that those disciples were born again? Anyone want to say in the beginning of their journey? No. Right? Middle? No. End? Mm, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, like, Peter gets rebuked by Jesus after confessing as the Messiah, and, and he sets his, 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 you know, his face to Jerusalem. He wants, you know, he needs to go to the cross, and Peter rebukes him, and he, he doesn't understand the cross. Now, we evangelicals say, if you don't understand the cross, dude, you're not a Christian. <laughs> so Peter's not a full believer then. He's being... He's a disciple who's following. He's a pre-conversion disciple. Now, when does it happen? Don't know. Probably not. Um, I, I suspect it between what they call the Jonah and Pentecost when John, uh, Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Spirit, or Pentecost or somewhere around there. But Jesus was with a whole lot of disciples who were not yet fully converted. Now, if we began to deal with our, our neighbors like that, and just to say, start investing in them. It's not just about giving them the four, four spiritual laws, as if you, you have no obligation to them before or afterwards. Start discipling them and teaching them the ways. Teach them to obey. This is consistent with the early church catechisms. They were, they were long-term pre-evangelistic tools to bring people to Christ. It's very effective, and we need to rediscover that again, I think. This is one of the things. No, I think that's powerful, and I think you've often said that evangelism is something that happens on the path of missions. And I think that's really important as we think about how we relate to the world, how we go into these different parts of culture, and how important it is for us to kind of get outside of our typical zones within church and evangelism to uh, dig deeper and further. 
Yeah, so when you disciple, you know, it's not just passing information on, you're actually forming people and it's a it's a way, it's an ethos. It's good for the discipler as well because it actually sets you up as a model. And by the way, I would argue that one of the key factors in, in missional movement, and this is a very exciting part of the missional church movement, is a recovery of the discipleship as fundamental, non-negotiable aspect of what it means to be a church. So we're not just about entertaining believers. We're not just creating people who admire Jesus. We want to create people that follow Jesus, right? Not just admirers. And, um, you know, and that we, we, we need to, to prioritize this. Um, the odd thing I would say is that most of us, most, I say this is a strong statement, but I think most, from my experience anyway, that most people have no notion of what discipleship is. They think it's something like a 12-week doctrine course, you know, somewhere along the way, and, and it's optional, really. You don't really have to do that, but you should to become a member of the church, you know. And that's not discipleship. And we don't even have a clear idea of it, let alone a process to make sure that people, if we're not clear about it, how can we disciple people? You know, it's, it's, it's the most fuzzy thing. We've got a whole lot of things we do, which is weird stuff. We don't know where they come from. We still perpetuate them. We don't know how to disciple people. I was thinking something's wrong here. And I think, yeah, like I said, one of the big recalibrations is the disciple-making and discipleship kind of process. Excellent. Hey, Alan, thank you so much for the time you've spent with us. We're going to point our readers to your website and some of your resources as well in the show notes. I want to encourage uh, any of our listeners out there, whether you're in a rural context, uh, urban context, small church, big church, uh, there are a lot of things that really need to be studied within the missional movement and that can be applied directly to your church as well to to uh, further the ministry and the mission of Christ. So thanks again, Alan, for spending your time with us, and take care. Well, thanks again to Alan Hirsch for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it really helps us if you take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and consider sending this episode to someone you know who might benefit by listening to it. Also, you can always download the show notes for each episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In the show notes, we always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve the show or guests you'd love to hear us talk to, you can email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.